Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Throughout our lives, we each create a digital footprint, some large and some small. Elaine Casket is the world's foremost expert in what happens to that data when we die. Who has access to our social media profiles, our emails, our search histories, and the documents and media we've created throughout our lives? We've only just begun to confront the thorny issues around the electronic privacy of the dead. What is an asset that you can pass on to your descendants? But the law is still lagging behind. She joins me to discuss what data is being collected about us, how it might be used, and how this is likely to develop in the future, and quite frankly, whether we should be worried about it or not. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Should we start by, by you explaining your knowledge of what actually does happen to our data when we die? Because this is a fairly new phenomenon, isn't it? Or maybe it's not. Well, of course, human beings have always generated information about themselves that outlived them, whether that was on cuneiform clay tablets or everything that's happened since. But we're in a pretty unprecedented period of time where the sheer volume of what is captured and stored is, of course, like nothing else ever in human history. And we're also in a period of time where the control of all of that information that we store up is largely controlled by not us, by big entities that write the rule book for what happens to our data when we die. And the answer to your question is, by default, it sticks around. There aren't any good, clear, effective mechanisms for identifying what data belongs to or is attached to a, a person who's now deceased and no clear rules for what then ought to happen to that information, which is just sort of piling up and piling up and piling up of, on the surface of the world and <laughs> gently heating up the world's atmosphere with L a lot literally, of... Literally, yes, literally. Yes, yeah. 
literally with a lot of fairly, I'm sure, irrelevant uh, information, but still potentially monetizable and useful in various ways to the people who hold it. So absolutely, we're in completely new territory. And I think people are just starting to wake up to the fact that this is a problem because the citizens of the digital age are going to be starting to die in greater numbers. And it's going to become an even more pressing dilemma about what happens to this data. And the data of the deceased can actually have strange connections that's not easy to anticipate with the privacy and the concerns and interests of the living because the data of the dead stay in their social networks, all mixed up with the information of the living. So it's kind of hard to do something with or access the data of a deceased person without simultaneously accessing a whole lot of other people's information as well. Well, this is a weird corollary to that, because this whole thing with social networks reminding you of something that happened five years ago or 10 years ago and wanting you to repost it or whatever it might be. And some of the time it's really interesting. You think, oh, that's kind of, I remember that. And then sometimes you think, I really didn't want to be reminded of that. I'd, I'd happily parked that unpleasant memory. And thank you very much, Mr. Social Media Network. You've just actually brought something up, which I've forgotten and I don't really want to remember. And, and it's surprisingly intrusive. I mean, it can be good and it can be bad. So I would imagine that the idea of preserving records for your next of kin is a wonderful thing, but also problematic. I mean, it's enough of a problem, I suppose, having huge amounts of video of your loved ones. That's a good thing, perhaps, but is there too much data? Do we really not want to know that? It depends completely, because as you're alluding to, I mean, of course, that could always happen before, right? You could always be surprised by a memory, whether that memory is occasioned by walking past that restaurant where you last saw the person you'd lost, or whether you come across a scrap of paper or something in a box in your attic. But as far as the records that we've historically kept, surprises are less frequent and we have a bit more control over that. You know, if I don't want to look at those pictures, I don't go to that box in the spare mm. room or whatever it is. So, yeah, this algorithm algorithmic delivering of here you are in a way that you can't control. Absolutely. It, it, it can be good or bad, depending on the person, the bereavement, the moment, and, and all of those things. But the comprehensive nature of what's logged and stored, if a person can get access to a deceased person's device or accounts, that's often a portal to all of the everything. And within that, there might be stuff that's comforting. There might be stuff that's downright disturbing. There might be stuff that's ambiguous and awakens questions that you didn't have before that the person is no longer around to address or resolve. So it kind of blows everything wide open. It, we think about the stuff we post on social media. And that's fairly performative stuff, I guess, even if we might subsequently think, oh, I wish I hadn't posted that as we get older and wiser. You know, at the time, anyway, we have to do that with deliberateness. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff about the digital traces that we leave behind that is deliberate, that isn't performative, that isn't intended for other people's eyes. If a person doesn't regularly erase their search history, for example, or the list of all the websites they've ever visited, including the ones at two and three in the morning when they're anxious about something or feeling some kind of way or whatever it is, you know, that can be an incredibly intimate autobiographical document by somebody who has access to that laptop after the person's 
gone and can completely change your vision of your relationship with that person or who you felt that person to be. And that's a really difficult thing for a lot of brave people, but we're assuming access here. And a big problem of it is a lot of people don't have access. If something's mm. password protected, double password protected, verifications, all that stuff that's really good to have these days when you don't yeah. want your accounts compromised or your identity stolen or whatever. It's like those perfectly sensible things after a person's death, both for sentimental information, pictures, all the family pictures. Usually it's often one person in the family that's kind of the keeper of certain archives, like photo archives, or practical stuff like where did this person have their bank accounts? I mean, you might not even know that because it might be concealed behind the apps on the locked phone. And so that problem is the problem you tend to read about more in the press. You know, my husband or my father or my mother died and Apple or Facebook or whoever won't give us access to these things. What are their rules currently? Or are they, is it changing all the time? I mean, does it vary by jurisdiction? I imagine it varies by jurisdiction as well, what they're allowed to do. Because a dead person has different kind of rights than a living person in, in English law anyway, as I understand it. So, for example, you can't defame somebody who's dead in English law. I don't think, although they are, there are some privacy rights and the sort of public sort of famous people rights, you know, Churchill, for example, can Churchill's family can protect certain aspects of his character. But you can say things about Churchill that are lies and Churchill can't sue you because he's not here anymore. Um, yeah, wealth and privilege and fame and things like that seem to give you a different level to sort of dignitary rights, I suppose, which is a bit different than privacy. But it certainly, for example, under GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, you know, which mostly the UK, you know, rules conform to GDPR, they said dead people don't have a legal personality, deceased persons aren't covered by this regulation. And they basically said, all you member states, figure it out. Like, however it seems right for you or you are, you figure it out. That was a really, really, really bad mistake, I think, because the problem is partly because these deceased people's data is definitely connected to all of these living persons' data in a way that can compromise living persons' privacy. But it's like, GDPR really needed to make a clearer stand on that because it's basically left a really hot mess in its wake. You know, laws about what you can leave in your will and how that works and what constitutes a legal will and all the rules around that are some of the most variable laws in the world. It's not like copyright that has a sort of global convention. It's actually really different everywhere and it can be super local. And that's a problem because then the super local meets with these really big international global companies that are in charge of everything. But generally speaking, what's covering stuff when you deal with something on Facebook or Apple or Google or Amazon is contract law. And that contract usually says one account, one user. That's it. So no, we can't transfer the ownership or the access of that account to somebody else. Sorry. No, you can't rock up to the Genius Bar in the Apple store and say, hi, here's a death certificate. Here's this phone. Can you help? They won't do that. So I think that's what catches a lot of people out. They assume it's kind of like, they think, well, I'm the spouse or I'm the child, I'm the next of kin. You know, why are you not treating this the same as you would this dining room table or whatever else I might be entitled to? So people haven't really made that leap to understand 
just how different digital stuff is to physical stuff and just how little control we have over it because we ceded control of that data to those platforms when we signed up. And so those platforms are largely in charge of what happens to that data when a person dies. People can get a really expensive court order to get hold of you know, an archive of something, this or that or whatever. And there've been successful cases like that, but it's a real hassle and it's an expense. And we shouldn't have to do that. We shouldn't have to go to court to get things that should be our possessions. I mean, there's a system in place for pretty much every other aspect of our lives about probate and death certificates and all this kind of thing. And it seems insane that people haven't thought about this. But on the other hand, people put operatable code in emails thinking that it will just be fun and interesting for people and completely ignoring the concept of malicious actors. I mean, absolutely, it is extraordinary sometimes that tech it only thinks of the good it can do and sometimes never considers the uh, the bad. It's, it's absolutely well, I think it's I think it's very preoccupied with like, oh, what can we do with this in the moment for this, you know, and things aren't designed with the end in mind. They're very much designed for right now. And you said possessions a minute ago, and this is the tricky thing. I mean, if you have an iPhone, for example, does the iPhone belong to you? Yes. You know, if you're not leasing it, does the account belong to you? No. Does the account contents belong to you that you've sort of posted, you know, or sort of put in the cloud ish, but the problem is, you know, how the saying possession is nine tenths of the law. The update mm. of that is access is nine tenths of the law. If you don't have the access, if you're not that person, you know, nine out of 10 times or probably a bit more than that, actually, uh, you are out of luck. And so the average person who's not really dedicated and resourceful and possibly with deep pockets is not going to be able to do something about that non-access. And so here we are eliminating our paper offices and blithely scanning in all the papers on our desk thinking, oh, this is great. I can you know, save it on the cloud. And then something happens to you and the people who are tasked with sorting out their estate might not be able to get hold of anything at all that they need and might mm. be sort of trotting around every single high street bank to sort of say, did so-and-so have an account here? Because it might not be clear. So as you can see, this is a dilemma that has lots of tales to it. And the other thing about possessions, as I said earlier, so much of our information is connected to that of other people. So here's this email thread that I have Well, what's with another person. Here's this Facebook messenger thing or this WhatsApp thing, or here's this exchange on social media. Multiple individuals put their input into that. And so it's a co-created, co-constructed thing. Person A is deceased, doesn't have a legal personality anymore. Persons B, C, D, E, F, they are alive. They do have a contract. They have their rights to privacy that they contracted to on this platform. So you know, we're not at the point where we can just unreal just the data pertaining to the deceased. Oh, so, so that's interesting. So you could have a situation where living person who has a more complex set of rights than deceased person mm. doesn't want the information to be passed on to a third party. Third party as the inheritors of the deceased party's stuff. You know, there, there's a conflict. There's a natural conflict there. And there might have been a good reason for it. There might have been a you know, bad reason for it. It could be anything. Human, humans are complex creatures. So you could, you've, got, you've got a massive tension there between a live human being that sort of inherits the stuff in normal world space 
and then somebody who doesn't actually want to be associated with it. Absolutely. About 16 years ago, um, one of the people that I talked to about this area a lot is a guy called Albert Gaderi, who's retired now, but who worked at Stanford. He's a privacy lawyer. Uh, and he's litigated a lot of these things to do with the data of the deceased, you know, with big companies and so forth. And he was describing how one of the first cases that he did in this area of law involved a young man who was riding his motorcycle back to university and had a crash and died. And his family was very keen to get hold of the content of various accounts and the law said they couldn't, uh, but they didn't understand that. And they wanted to litigate over that. And so they went to Albert and they found a way to help this family but involved going around to every single person that that young man was in communication with and getting permission to be able to access stuff and then getting the content of stuff. But the sting in the tail is it all turned out very badly because what happened was kind of like I was describing before the young man wasn't really who his family thought that he was. It exposed a lot of secrets that then became kind of their last memories mm. of him. Uh, but it also exposed a lot of other family secrets and problems. You know, the mom found out that the sister actually didn't like her very much, or had some problems with her, and all of these conflicts happened as a result of accessing these things. And so, you know, Albert says the golden rule for him in this area is be careful what you ask for, or because you might not like it if you get it. But people have it in their heads that when they're really craving someone that they've lost, or they're really missing something, or perhaps when they want to know something, if there's something troubling or mysterious about the death or about the relationship, they think, oh, if I could just get access, I will feel better. Something will be resolved or I'll answer this question or I'll feel closer to the person. And I think oftentimes it ends up being more complex than that. It's almost like retrospective eavesdropping on somebody's life. You know, they often say, either listening for information about yourself, you'll never hear anything good said about you, you know, so you're better off mm -hmm. not doing it. And then you could argue, because a lot of people use social media as a form of diary. Some people, as you say, use it as a performance art. You know, their life isn't what they say it is, but it's part of their persona. Other people seem to use it just as a sort of aid memoir. Here's a photo of me doing something. It's like, okay, that's just kind of a, a mundane diary and everything in between. And it's just fascinating because it isn't the whole person. That's the other thing. It's a fragment of that person's personality. And in, in a way, it gets fossilized and frozen. But I was also thinking about historians. I mean, I, my love of history, you know, the Dark Ages used to be called the Dark Ages because there wasn't that much known about it. And as we've uncovered more, we've changed the, we're not called the Dark Ages anymore because there is quite a lot of information about it now. And in some ways, you could argue that we're perhaps entering a new dark ages here because the, the data might not be preserved. It's so mundane that everything is thrown away. You won't have the Samuel Pepys diaries because nobody's really bothering in the same way. And, you know, they're not that interesting. And maybe they are in aggregate. But if they were all switched off and thrown away, you could imagine a situation where social media decide, we'll just delete all of this. But I don't think they ever will because they want the information, you know. Well, I think it's only valuable to them for a set period of time, because one of the things that they can do with the data of the deceased, because the deceased person is out of contract and they can do whatever they want with it, they can mine a lot of information or draw a lot of inferences from that deceased person's data about still living users without, but then that's only going to be 
useful for the period of time that that can be then used to sell these people something or to kind of keep these people on the hook in the attention economy, mm-hmm. right? And so a lot of it might be kept around. And then there have to be systems for identifying what's important to keep and what can we jettison. And of course, a lot of values might go into that. The values and the biases that go into these decisions about whose data is important enough to keep, whose data can be jettisoned or which you know can be jettisoned. It, that's a really dicey territory there too, I think. But even if it's still there, if people can't access it, if all of the parties who might have an interest in it or a benefit from it cannot access it, it might as well not be there. Mm. Um, I've used that very phrase before that we could all be living through the kind of early digital age, dark ages, you know, because we have this conceit or this idea, this phrase that online is forever. We kind of use it as a warning saying, careful what you post up there because online is forever. That will always be there. And it's almost lulled people, I think, into a false sense of security about the longevity and the accessibility of their data. I think it's hard for people to imagine their loved ones won't be able to get hold of those pictures. They just sort of assume that they will be able to, and they don't need to plan ahead for that stuff. So yeah, I think that could be very possible. You kind of got these two polarized possibilities. You could have absolutely everything to the extent that the genealogists, the amateur genealogists of the future are just so bored because there's no chase, you know, there's no hunt. Okay, you know, like, oh, you want pictures of your great grandmother? Here's 76,000 pictures from Instagram or whatever. <laughs> That's boring. Doesn't really have the thrill of the chase that it seems to have for genealogists looking back at the 19th century or whatever. On the other hand, there could be nothing at all, you know, answer to kind of where do you come from or who your ancestors could be. I've got no idea. (laughs) There's just no record that's been preserved of them because at a certain point in the early 21st century, everybody stopped recording things on paper and printing photographs out and doing other things. So we just don't know. Sorry. (laughs) There there might not be anything. I was thinking about that the other day. I was trying to access some data and it was from 10 years ago, which isn't that long ago. And I went to specialists and they said, we don't have the cables for those machines anymore. I said, that's only 10 years ago. You're supposed to be an archive specialist. I, I would expect that if you say 100 years ago. But uh, apparently, this is not worth keeping the data around. They could get some cables built, custom cables made for a very large amount of money, which we're doing because we want the data. But that was an exceptional circumstance. But you know, your, your, your grandmother's pictures of her down the same pub that she was drinking in for the last 30 years of her life which are lovely if that's your important thing, but basically all the same, more or less, mm. are arguably just going to dissolve away entirely. And there's not even there's not even a sort of chemical record of it, like there is on some manuscripts or where yeah. words, palimpsests, where things have been scraped off. You can, yeah. with certain viewing techniques, you can get the data back a bit. Absolutely. Dead, the picture sea, underneath the picture, yeah, you know, exactly. all that stuff. Dead, yeah. Dead Sea Scrolls. This data is literally it's gone because the data's gone forever. Yeah. You know, carbon dating, you know, like, what is this? Okay. You can carbon date, you can find something else about, yeah, but you're right. It doesn't have that materiality and we might very well. And this seems unimaginable because we're in such a data saturated, data rich, always too much of an environment. Again, it's hard for us to process that it could go, but you know, 50 years from now, you want to see a papyrus scroll? No problem. You want to see something from your Instagram account 50 years ago? No, sorry. You know, (laughs) stuff from the old kingdom in Egypt can still be around. You know, that could be easier than a MySpace account from 2004, right? 
right? And in, in fact, there was a supposed, not, rather than a, a data cull, a data loss incurred through a data migration with MySpace about a you know year and a half ago or something where they're like, oh, sorry, we were migrating this data from here to there. and We lost all of this information. But, you know, data calls are going to be necessary. I mean, ideally, we'd move to a position of more digital minimalism where less of this data was tracked and captured and kept in the first place. But since we haven't done that and we don't seem to be any closer to it, there's going to have to be decisions made about it because it feels to me just not okay for all of this surfeit data to be stuffing the data centers of the world and getting cooled down by whatever technologies are cooling it down. It just, that really bugs me that that's happening. But then you can get to the point where, all right, who's making the decisions about this? How do we decide? Oh, yeah, you, you're important enough to be remembered to history. Yeah. You guys, not so much. We don't really care about you. So it feels like so contrary to, for example, the 1990s vision or Tim Berners-Lee kind of vision of the internet as being this democratizing, you know, inclusive kind of thing that we could end up just perpetuating inequalities because certain people might be able to afford, because it might be a monetary thing eventually, right? Right. 19th century Père Lachaise and, you know, Paris cemetery or whatever, like, oh, you're a big guy, big money. Yeah, sure. You can have a massive, great monument. So everybody's like, oh, this guy, you know, but you know, the huddled masses, here's your mass grave over here that's unmarked. And we could actually have a digital version of that because rich, you yeah. know, white guy in Silicon Valley can afford to be remembered in perpetuity because he can pay mm. for it or his estate can pay for it. Somebody else, you know, a person of color in Central Africa somewhere. No, we don't remember you. So that is problematic. A bit like the, the idea that maybe Twitter will archive all those tweets from people with blue ticks. But anybody that doesn't have a blue tick, there's a sledgehammer solution, isn't it? If you're not verified, we don't care about your data. Um, I know. Yeah. And do you know, Twitter very recently moved to memorialization like its colleagues and, you know, on Facebook and Instagram. And I was really upset about that decision because I feel like <laughs> I really wish that social media, as important as memorialized accounts are for many bereaved people, I really wish that social media platforms who weren't designed for this purpose had never said yes to memorialization in the first place. Because then I feel like it would have returned kind of responsibility for the bereaved and people to whom that deceased person was important uh, to maintain their own archives if that's important to them or to remember the person in a way that they decide themselves rather than it being yet another thing that we depend on social media to do, mm -hmm. you know, hold on to my deceased loved one's information for me, you know, always be there when I go to, you know, design it in a way that controls for my emotional or anticipates my emotional experience. And I feel like unshouldering that responsibility onto social media companies, and then I'm very happily assuming that responsibility is a bad step. It's a step in the wrong direction. So I wish that they pushed that back. Uh, Facebook started memorializing accounts properly after the Virginia Tech uh, mass shooting what, massacre. What, yeah, in what, do you, what do you mean by memorializing? Just for those that might not, yeah, um, sure, might not and understand it. So social media platforms like Facebook used to have a delete upon death policy in their terms and conditions, which is the same thing that email accounts and other things had had. And then the Virginia Tech massacre happened at a university campus in the United States in 2007. And the bereaved appealed to Facebook and said, please don't 
delete these accounts. These have become sites of going to can remember these people. And so Facebook designed this thing where the profile could be frozen, sort of. You couldn't log into it anymore. Nobody could get access to it. Again, one, one account, one user, users died. But then people could continue to visit it. So people's in-life social media presences would then be converted into a memorial when they died. And this became something over time with various iterations of policy that started to happen essentially by default. And now Twitter had not done that. And Twitter in 2019, late 2019 said, oh, hey guys, just so you know, we're gonna do a big call of an active account soon in December, 2019. So if you haven't logged in for a while and you want your Twitter account, log in immediately a big outcry from bereaved people saying, you can't do this because an inactive account call is a delete upon death policy with a delay. Yeah. So please, you know, and they, within 24 hours, they backed off saying, oh, no, no, so, so sorry, so sorry. We'll look into a memorialization policy, which they've now done. And I just feel <laughs> like it's such a step in the wrong direction because it's essentially sort of saying, okay, technology companies, it's your job to be there for us in our remembrance and in grief until we want you sort of to design, you know, sort of convert or design things for memorialization for us. And the fact that there was such an outcry and sort of saying it would be wrong for you to delete these accounts. Like, how can you do this? This is immoral. This is terrible. Like what, you know, it's like a killing them all over again sort of thing. I feel unsettled by that level of dependence on these platforms. Well, especially private organizations that are controlled by for-profit motivation and, you know, have shareholders that want to make money. You know, it's driven by a commercial component. If it was, you could argue if it was at least government sanctioned, then there would be some diminishment of that sort of for-profit perspective. And, you, you know, also, as I said before, sometimes people want to be forgotten. I mean, we have this concept in Europe anyway, about the idea of being able to be forgotten, even when you're alive. And, I could imagine the situation where people actually want the social media of their deceased to be forgotten, got rid of. Um, yeah. Some social media, like Facebook, you can tick, I want my account deleted upon death. That's an option. Okay. You know, you nominate a legacy contact or you say, I want an archive to be downloadable or you say, I want it deleted upon death. But the thing is, under current UK law, at least you can tick that box all you want if it were challenged in court, it's actually not legally binding because ticking something on a social media platform doesn't hold up in law in the UK yet. Okay. It does in most states of the United States, but it doesn't here. So people can be merrily ticking away, thinking they're seizing control over their digital legacy. But if somebody were to challenge it in court, I don't know what would happen. That's not been tested yet. Yeah, I've come across the, the slight odd thing, which is the, the idea that people want you to remove data from your database, but you have to sort of keep a record of the fact that they've requested the data removal. You have to keep a memory of that people have wanted to be removed, if you so to me. This is a really weird concept. that you. So we have to remind ourselves that you've been deleted. How does that work? But um, Yeah, once you've written yourself into the book of life or the, yes. the digital book of life, you can't unwrite yourself. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how hard it is to remove yourself or unwrite yourself, partly because there's all sorts of things that are now capturing data about us anyway that we have no control over. So the forward march, the onward march of facial recognition technology in mm. so many of our physical environments is something that people are, I think, sleepwalking into. Mm. Uh, the installation of virtual home assistants that 
that are voice activated, that are ambient listening, you know, like Alexa or, you know, echoes and things like that is happening. And so all of these things, you know, produce data in and of themselves. They're data that are triangulated with other things. You know, something that's really huge in the United States, less so here, but I'm sure it's coming, is uh, baby valence, you know, uh, monitoring the physiological, you know, like a pulse oximetry socks for infants that are being sold as, you know, peace of mind and parental surveillance being normalized as good parenting. So mm-hmm. we've got, you know, people accumulating that digital reflection, that digital footprint from way before they have any control over it. So all of these data points taken in aggregate, you know, and re-identified with that individual when the person hits 13 or 16 or whatever the law is in your land, which is very easy to do. I mean, these are things too. So it's not just about our social, again, the deliberate social media stuff. Now, all the things that used to be called surveillance and wiretapping are being sold to us as fun and convenient and as safeguarding us and as something that if we don't participate in, we're somehow going to not be fully paid up members of digital society and we're going to miss out on stuff. So capturing data has been really fetishized and candy colored and, you know, encouraged across all phases of life. I think it kind of comes down to people wanting somebody, you know, this paternal instinct that, society sometimes has to tell people what they should do. The idea for me of, the, of an internet of things like your fridge ordering new food for you when it realises that the milk is is perhaps uh, you know one day older than it should be. And quite frankly, you know, milk that's one day old, you, you deal with it. You, know, you maybe have slightly off milk and you make another cup of tea, but who cares? But the idea that your fridge could do that, the next step, I suppose, is the stuff appears suddenly in your fridge that you didn't know you'd ordered. And vacuum pipes. (laughs) And and, yeah, and and also then then you get this situation where the fridge says, no, I'm not going to order you that full fat milk because it's not good for you. Yeah, I've been talking to your scale that's also connected to the cloud and uh, and you're not allowed that this week. And And the the AI says you can't. Yeah, the doctors, you know, the, the, the medical AI that I'm also connected with said that you're in a certain risk group and therefore this is the list of foods I am willing to order for you. Yeah, because your smartwatch has been monitoring various things about your health all week. And then there's the data from the scale. And then there's the thing from the refrigerator. And then there's (laughs) a connection to your medical records because you've signed off on your watch to communicate with your GP or something like that. So, I mean, this isn't science fiction. You know, there are actually, if people sign up to it and say, oh, yes, please, I'd like that. That's fine. All the companies involved in making these technologies will rejoice, you know, because of course, for example, the baby monitoring, the pulse oximetry sock that I was referring to, which is one brand is called Owlet in the United States. It might go for like 350 quid, but that's not where they're making their money. They're making their money from selling the aggregate data of all Mm. (laughs) these children. And so it's like that we're sold this idea that technology eventually can eliminate any and all friction from our experience. And that includes this grief and bereavement and Facebook's last iteration of uh, legacy contact and memorialization on Facebook. There was a press release in April, 2019 saying, making it easier to honor a loved one after they pass away. And they talked about the elimination of all these pain points, you know, (laughs) that, you know, as though grief and sadness at a loss were something to be ironed away, something that technology could control for, that could be reduced by good design as though that's what we want. 
And yeah, fine. I mean, instinctively, do we shy away from pain? Yes. You know, do we go towards pleasure and entertainment? Yes. But I don't consider it to be a laudable aim for technology to remove sadness or grief or pain or any of those things from the wide spectrum of human experience because it leeches meaning out yes. of the human well, experience. Well, it sanitizes the life and death. I mean, as tragic as death is, it's also a spur sometimes to people to say, well, I better get on with my life. I've got a finite number of years and there's a thing I've been meaning to getting around to doing. And this personal tragedy in my life, as awful as it is, is a springboard to doing something else with my life. And, and that is a good thing. And to sort of say that death is, is something to be uh, avoided, it seems, like, it seems actually like a tragedy. It seems like they're just selling something. Um, yeah. which is, I suppose, what it actually is. They are just selling something. Oh, yeah. Well, your data. for yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, But, you know, for example, to your point about the reminders that you were talking about a little while ago, you know, one of the things that Facebook did in April of 2019 said, oh, we're aware that uh, birthday reminders of the deceased person are probably really painful for people. So even if a profile hasn't been memorialized yet, so um, if the family hasn't requested memorialization or the death hasn't been detected, hasn't being memorialized, will use artificial intelligence to divine from the content that the person's passed away so that birthday reminders will stop. Making this assumption that that, that is going to be universally painful for mm. a brief person to receive a birthday reminder and that it's in their gift to control for that reaction, you know, and control that pain away. And a couple of mothers that I talked to for my book who had lost kids in their 20s said they were devastated when the birthday reminders stopped because that's something that they really wanted. And so grief is so idiosyncratic and mm. grievers are really, they have agency, you know, they're not passive. They knit together narratives of the dead person, of their relationship with them, of themselves as bereaved people that change over time. They use all sorts of things, including but not limited to whatever's available digitally or the absence of things being available digitally. They kind of weave that into their story. They have agency. They're not just passive things to have their feelings controlled by anything or anybody. That's not what grief is. So in a way, we're talking about the social media tending to sort of hit this problem with a sledgehammer and make decisions for us all, as opposed to giving us a suite of options, which we may or may not want to adopt. I mean, is that would that be your suggestion for best practice in this area? Or is this something that's going to continue to develop? My suggestion for best practice is that over time, the social media companies that have assumed responsibility for memorializing things by default walk that back and to say, okay, after somebody's death, there's a fixed period of time in which anybody with who has a stake or a wish in this can download only that content that they could already access. And for that to be easy and for it not to be in this kind of weird format, but for it to be something that, you know, they can, mm. you know, kind of get. Uh, easily. And then after that, then it's done. And we eliminate that person's data from our our servers. 
that's what would be ideal in my book. An intra or sort of a medium sort of satisfactory solution might be something more like giving, as you say, users, individual users, much more fine grain control over what they want to see and what they don't. And to allow there to be some flexibility on that because one day somebody might think, oh gosh, I don't want to see this, but I don't want to delete it. They don't want to do something that they can't undo. Mm. Uh, So for there to be flexibility in that. But I just don't think it's the best solution for something to be available ad infinitum. Now, the problem, of course, comes with with something you reference, history. And here we have the largest archive of human interaction and behavior and events ever captured. It's an incredible archive, isn't it? It's it's amazing, Mm. you know, what is being captured about these times that is then available to the kind of folks of the future. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And yet, we know how many problems there are with this archive. For one thing, our behaviors are being so expertly nudged and manipulated by these platforms themselves. So I'm like, well, okay, of what is this an archive? This is an archive of behavior that you helped cause and nudge and provoke in the first place. Mm. And so it's kind of both the designer and the recorder of our behaviors individually and collectively. You might know about BJ Fogg's uh, lab at Stanford. I think it's now it's called, it used to be called the Persuasive Technologies Lab. And now I think it's called the Behavioral Design Lab. I've heard of it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. both fairly sinister names for laboratories perhaps. But I mean, and a lot of people involved in these technologies in Silicon Valley are graduates of, or at least took, you know, a couple of modules from this guy. And I think we underestimate so much the extent to which our behaviors individually and collectively are being shaped. And of course, one of those is the fact that surveillance has been so normalized, mm. you know, and that we have come to kind of expect and value it or rely on it and depend on it. And that's happened in an extraordinarily short period of time with technologies that once upon a time we would have found quite suspicious. So we've been sort of snookered into this uh, in a short period of time. So I'm thinking, okay, this amazing historical art archive, but a lot about the archive is untrustworthy. It's going to be hard for the historians of the future, just as it's hard for us now to discern fact from manipulated fiction and probably it's very, it's a complicated archive. I mean, that's always been an issue for historians. And the further back you go, the more you have to interpret things. Uh, And often you would interpret them with, with a gloss of your own experiences as well. You know, 20th, 21st century historians interpret 
history different than 19th century historians. I particularly think of the sort of Victorian age of wealthy gentlemen plundering, going around the, the world, kind of collecting things for their museums. That was a particular moment in time where certain things were done, which are now being undone in quite a large way. I'm wondering how our society will be interpreted in another three or 400 years by people in the future looking back on us and going, they were insane to do that, utterly, utterly insane. Literally, they paid for recording devices to be put in every room of their houses. Literally, they carried around surveillance devices. They paid for, these weren't even government sanctioned. These weren't even... They paid big money for it. Yeah, they paid a lot of money for it and proudly showed everybody what they were doing. And yet big business was monetizing them and getting them to spend money on things. Or will they go, wow, what an amazing depth of knowledge we now have. And we don't have to analyze history. We've got so much data. We can tell you exactly what was going on with any one person on a Tuesday. And it's very boring and mundane. That's the other problem. A lot of history is quite mundane and just people surviving. Or, as you said, will there be, yes, there's this complete, we just don't know. We have, a, we have roads, we have buildings, we have a few paper records, but not many. But weirdly, there was a vast explosion of data and it's all gone. Yeah, or some solar <laughs> flare of some kind yeah, sort yeah, of wiped yeah. it out. Absolutely. And, you know, that possible insanity judgment from the historians of the future I mean, Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology, who was the first person at Google, I think, to have the sort of design ethicist, um, you know, title there. And he went to Stanford and encountered uh, that BJ Fogg's laboratory there, and then has gone on, of course, to to develop the Center for Humane Technology. He's the one who does the podcast with his colleague, Your Undivided Attention, which is an excellent, excellent podcast. Fantastic. Everything the Center for Humane Technology does is. But when he was a guest on another podcast, he was saying, you know, we we have been for the last 10 years, the subjects or the participants, the willing participants, you know, of the greatest mass psychological experiment mm. or manipulation ever. And it's still ongoing and it doesn't show any signs of slowing. If the internet of things, the uptake of the continued uptake of the internet of things, technologies is any guide, we're still, we're still lapping it up. Mm. And I think that all of these Companies have become really expert at manipulating us into using discourses of convenience and frictionlessness and entertainment and safety and freedom from all sorts of things that we fear to sway us, to influence us into buying this stuff, into ticking those boxes that says, yes, please share my share my data. And to the extent that a lot of us know, like I know that when they say, I know that Internet of Things means like surveillance devices in your home, yes. you know, that are going to, you know, sell your information in all sorts of ways that could disadvantage you, that could make you poorer, that could influence your child's future on the behavioral futures markets, you know, that data that could be re-identified with her. I know all that. I know all mm -hmm. that. And now and again, I'll make a decision that goes against that knowledge. Mm. And even though I care deeply about this stuff and every privacy person and tech person that I know says the same thing. Hmm. I was wondering whether the lack, because some people, to get credit, you often need to have a credit history, you know, and, and the, the, you, you cannot get money if you don't have a track record, if they can't see that you borrowed money and paid it back, borrowed it and paid it back. 
you, you sort of fall into this sort of weird loophole, which is you, you may be good for the money, but we have no record, therefore you can't have it. Could you imagine a situation where you haven't had these surveillance devices in your home? We don't know anything about you. Therefore, we won't give you any of these things because we don't know anything about you. We can't trust you. The, the default is, unless we have data on you, we can't trust you. And um, which is really quite worrying because it means that if you don't embrace the surveillance technology, the surveillance world, you will be disadvantaged, not just because nobody has their data, but because they won't give you anything because you don't exist. 100%. The answer to that is yes, and it already happens. And I think it already happens in another way, which is that it's very standard practice for a potential employer, say, to do a search on the applicant. And I know how I feel if I search for somebody and that person doesn't come up, like I can't find anything about that person. Say it's a psychologist that I was thinking of referring to because I don't have space in my diary, in my clinic. And if I can't find enough information online for me to make a judgment about that person, I'm probably not going to be making that referral unless I already have close personal knowledge of them. So that's not information that's necessarily derived from surveillance per se, you know, but it's a reason for people to be visible and present and sharing their data online because it's this passport to legitimacy or trust. Exactly. If you're not visible, if your data is not there, you're somehow stamped as a less trustworthy person. And of course, these decisions are going to be made a large part, some of these decisions about mortgages, about bank accounts, about whatever, sometimes get made algorithmically. And there yes. sometimes are errors in that, you know, and we've mm-hmm. seen some pretty recent, you know, and the stuff with the A-level, you know, kind of stuff was one of those things in the UK where a lot of students were disadvantaged because of some algorithmic decisions that were made yeah. at universities the other year. And that example, we should be looking at that and sort of saying, see this? See what happened with all of these kids headed to university and this decision that got made and the mess that that was? Welcome to it. Like apply this to all sorts of other things about other realms of our life. This is a Cassandra moment right here that we should be paying attention to and not seeing in isolation as like, oh, that was a one-off thing. That's illustrative. But it is seen as a one-off aberration. And it shouldn't be because I've seen computer code and I've seen the notes that go along, the comments that go along the computer code. And I've literally seen sophisticated pieces of software with don't change this bit. Nobody knows why, but if you change it, the system doesn't work anymore. And that's the human readable component of it. And people leave that sort of here be dragons component of the code. <laughs> they, 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 they leave it out. They just go, just don't touch it because every time anybody touches this bit, it's a disaster. And we don't know why. And I was talking to some people about YouTube. Uh, and about algorithms. And I get the feeling that there is no human being that actually knows how the system works anymore, that Mm. the systems are so complex that it's not possible to know how it works anymore. You could have some ideas and those ideas can be closer to how it works, but the systems are so complex that in fact, it's not plausible to actually know how it works or how it doesn't work, which is really definition. That's the definition of big data and with the point where the smartest person in the room is the room, right? Right. And big data and people don't really, they have a hard time wrapping their head around big data by definition. Big data is a kind of post-theory landscape in which all that matters is correlation. And you have this impossibly 
huge fund of data that's looking all the time for correlations that might make no logical sense, and we don't know why we're there, and we don't know why people who drive a Ford Focus in Wyoming are very likely to buy that brand of beef jerky, but you know that, so you just make Mm. sure that you still keep on working that correlation. But the problem is then human actors because humans are humans and we have a hard time not deriving causation from correlation, come along and based on our own prejudices and biases, we draw causal explanations for things that are correlations. And, mm. you know, and, you know, or we, we just don't question the correlations. So what we were talking about, the baby valence and the monitoring kids, and of course, surveillance is now pretty much being equated with responsible parenting and non-surveillance is being starting to be equated with neglectful parenting, which is worrying. And that starts from pre-birth onwards. But I mean, let's say from all of this data that they're deriving from all these infants wearing these pulse oximeter sock things, that they see a correlation over time that kids who had a particular reading when they wore these socks are this much more likely to have a heart attack or some sort of coronary event at the age of 49. And guess who's going to be interested in that data? Health insurance companies in places where people depend on health insurance. And what would be a really convenient time to not renew that health insurance policy let's say 48, you know, so oh, wow. it's, you know, and it doesn't mean that person is going to have it because it's a correlation, you know, but you get into, this is the kind of landscape we're in. And this is why these kinds of data are so like physiological and all this monitoring and tracking It's being sold to us as being for our health. And so we can be more aware of our health and maybe, yeah, we are, you know, we love looking at our watches and seeing, oh yes, okay. And must get more activity act, you know, today that's great and everything, but unless there's something to explicitly forbid it, or we've opted out of it in some sort of way, that data anonymized or not is being fed into things that might adversely affect us or disadvantage us away down the line, because a lot of health warning, a lot of these applications of data have yet to mature. <laughs> so, so so you could, as a baby, have been surveilled without any knowledge of yourself. You're suddenly effectively on a list that you have no idea about. And then suddenly you've lived your life. Suddenly at 48, your insurance company cancels everything because that was scheduled to be the case, but you didn't know about it. And you're thinking, well, what? I don't understand. Nothing's literally nothing's changed in my life. And you go, ah, oh, yes. But your profile as an infant was such that you're high risk now. So forget about it. And suddenly you didn't know you were chugging along normally. And suddenly the rug is pulled from under your feet because of something that was found out 40 years ago about you. Correct. That's right. Wow. That's quite terrifying. So there's these traps in the road for us in the future, potentially, that we won't even have knowledge of until suddenly we fall into them. Yes. And and of course, and that the gatherers of these data might not also have knowledge of yet, because it might yet be that the twist or turn comes where they think, aha, now that we have triangulated this with this with this, now we see this application for this data. Because of course, the context is changing all the time. So if these data do stick around, and if somebody has this data shadow that follows them and burgeons and burgeons throughout life, there might be all of this data that seems like it's useless 
right? Like, oh, Mm -hmm. like, why not get rid of it? Why not just jettison it? Why not get it off the servers that are heating up the planet? Well, I'll tell you why. Because when big data gets bigger and big data gets bigger and big data gets bigger, then there's that many more unexpected correlations that could come out of unexpected places. That's what big data does. It finds connections that no human being, no organization, no anything could find or understand on their own. And big data doesn't care about theory or causality. The people benefiting from the correlations that big data finds don't care about that kind of thing. They just care about how they can protect themselves or make more money or be more secure as a result of knowing about those correlations and applying them to decisions like that, like the health so, insurance. So it's decision. completely inhuman and amoral. Exactly. In, in, yeah. Not in, not immoral, amoral. amoral. A theoretical, amoral, non-causal. It's post-causal. It's post-theory. It's post-moral. It's just utterly utilitarian and pragmatic. It, it is like a science fiction nightmare, slowly uh, unraveling, and we've found ourselves thoroughly enmeshed in it without realizing whether we like it or not. Slow first, but I'm not quite <laughs> sure that slow is the adjective that I'd apply to it now, but I think it's accelerating. We, we should probably sort of wind up, but do you think that there's a way to put the brakes on this? Does this come from government and society deciding this is not acceptable and basically saying, no, you can't do this, it's illegal? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that's happened up to this point is that organizations have been very much pushing it on to individual consumers and users and data sources to make decisions about their data or whatever. But this is a kind of trade-off fallacy. When there's such inequality in power and knowledge and comprehensibility, we go all around all the time saying, oh, well, no, I do want that good and service, good or service. So I'm perfectly happy to exchange my data you know, for that because I get it free. So that's fine. How can it possibly hurt me. But so because there is that fallacy and because that person actually doesn't have any power and doesn't have any knowledge about what could happen to them or theirs as a result of relinquishing their data, this is really not okay. We're basically being kind of cannibalized, you know, for our data in ways that are going to unfold potentially in really divisive and unequal and unfair and profit-driven kinds of things. And so it's a very bad direction. And the only thing that can really put a stop to it is all of these corporations and organizations being brought to heel. But that requires dismantling a business model that's sort of now really sort of bedded in. And a lot of the governments, especially in places where lobbies and things like that have a lot of power, are kind of in the pockets Mm. of it, but also don't understand. Mm. You know, like you, you don't necessarily get a whole lot of like super savvy sort of tech specialists within government itself. You get people advising, of course, and people like the Center for Humane Technology advise governments and regulators. But governments and regulators need to stand up and say no. And we need to be electing people who stand up and say mm. no and who aren't profiting themselves from relationships mm. with corporations that do and this. If, and if, and if, yeah. And if governments and society won't do that, and I understanding of history is that if your legitimate roots to modifying aspects of society that you don't like, like French Revolution, for example, what results is armed insurrection is the final way of disagreeing with something if your government won't actually do something about it and you feel strongly enough about it and you've got nothing left to lose, is that kind of extreme level of correction in a society. And that way lies madness these days. That would be unfortunate. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, I definitely don't want to cap off a podcast by encouraging armed insurrection, but no, I would no, say no, that not, would be unreal. I, 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 agree, I agree entirely, but you know, there are plenty of science fiction stories where you know humanity is controlled and ruled by artificial intelligence, and the only option is to dig tunnels underground and sort of defend yourself against the robots and the overlords of society. And uh, it's not that implausible. It's such a cliche, isn't it? Like the war with the robots and man versus machine and everything like that. And it sounds like such a kind of um, like this terrified Luddite kind of, you know, sort of thing, you know, and it's, of course, it's a big trope, you know, in science fiction and probably goes back from the industrial revolution onwards. I, I've been using the term Luddite for years without knowing who they were. And then I found mm. out they were like factory workers in 19th century England who, you know, were going in and like smashing up the mill equipment mm. and stuff, gathering under cover of darkness on the moors to like go and smash everything up because they were worried about what was going to happen. Yeah, it was Ned Ludd, wasn't it? Actually, chap, yeah. a chap called Mr. Ludd. Yeah, yeah him and his Luddites. Men and the Luddites sounds like a great name for a band, yes. doesn't it? So of course we've had this, you know, fear for a long time and we have fear of new things or anxiety about innovation and everything like that. So there is that kind of instinct to feel anxious mm. about innovation. So I get it, but I feel very strongly that this is different territory that mm. we're in and we're probably more at risk of exactly that man versus <laughs> machine robot wars than ever we've been in the course of history. So, well, it might, so it waking might, up might, and smelling the coffee is required. Yeah. Well, we might come up with new terms for it as well, because apparently French saboteur comes from throwing your shoes into the machinery as well in a very similar way. So the Industrial Revolution has got a lot of models for us to examine and see what might happen. Now, I think they were a bit more into direct action back then and could be a bit more into direct action, but there were troops called on social movements in this country and other countries. You know, there was bad times came from industrial revolutions. And you you could argue that there's another industrial revolution and that if you look at history, there's the fairly significant possibility of other bad times coming as a result of it. I don't think that's, well, hopefully that won't be the case, but not that far from it in many ways. Mm, and they were simpler mm. times when people didn't, you know, when, when this kind of mass influence yeah. below the level of our conscious awareness largely wasn't going on. And so that's the concerning thing about mm. now, I think, or the greater challenge, the kind of almost mass hypnosis that's happened. And that's a tough one. We've gotten to the point where we kind of need to be saved from ourselves. And I'm not quite mm. sure who those saviors are or will be. <laughs> well, it was absolutely delightful talking to you. Thank you very much. That's really interesting. Um, you've, you've mentioned your book and everything. Is there anything else you wanted to mention for people to sort of follow up on this? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, my book looks at a lot of these things. We've gone way beyond the scope of the things that I talked about in that book, which is very much about death and the digital. But I'm working on another book called Exposed, A Life in Data, which goes from pre-birth to post-death and all the way across <laughs> the life cycle and looks at our relationship with technology and privacy across the lifespan. So that's a work in progress, kind of slightly set back by pandemic life and everything like that. So I don't think it's going to come out as soon as I had hoped it would, but I'm plugging away at it. And the the more I find out about this landscape, the more I am fascinated and concerned in equal measure. And I just <laughs> really want to encourage people to try to stay awake and to stay reflective and to think and to always pause before giving away uh, too much of your data. It's, it's a really difficult thing to catch this in flight because it's so automatic now, but I really just encourage people to slow down and think. Mm, wonderful. 
thank you so much. That was really interesting. And um, hopefully we'll speak again soon. I'd like <laughs> yeah. that. Thank yeah. you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.